and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Paul McVeigh. This podcast is brought to you by Hawking Dynamics, the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking Dynamics takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customizable cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. The technology is constantly evolving, much like an app update for your iPhone. They communicate with users on a daily basis to make their system better. In addition to all of that, they also offer some of the most competitive prices for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system. So, if you want to find out more, check out their easy intro to force plate section at www.hawkingdynamics.com forward slash blog. So, without further ado, it's time to welcome Paul onto the show. So, Paul, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Matt. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for, for joining us. So, uh, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Quick introduction. I'm Irish, so, you know, we don't really do quick uh, introductions. You know, why <laughs> say something in, in 50 words when I can take a thousand? Um, <laughs> I... Uh, Okay, so I played professional football in the Premier League for Tottenham Hotspur and Norwich City and also internationally for Northern Ireland, as well as um, when I finished playing in about 2010, I had this real fascination around psychology. And I suppose that part of that came from when I studied my degree from MMU in sports science and, and I Loved the psychological element of it. And so whenever I decided to stop playing, I went down that route of sports psychology. So started working with uh, Norwich City for a couple of years and, and really fortunate uh, was the, were um, working with the team, the youth team, whenever they won the FA Youth Cup, which again, just an amazing achievement, beating Chelsea in both legs in the final. And then going on and having five seasons with Crystal Palace and again, really, really interesting times. So, for example, someone like Aaron Wambasaka's first day at Palace was my first day, and, and obviously worked with him for five years. And obviously, he's gone on to do an amazing, amazing um, job at Manchester United. And so, yeah, so I've been doing that for pretty much the last seven years or so. And whilst also becoming a, a keynote speaker, so I, I was interested in the world of of public speaking and how you can take the lessons from football and transpose them across into the corporate world. So very fortunate to be pretty much the only uh, Premier League player who's now keynote speaking for, for different organisations. And that takes me around the world and, and doing it for the likes of Microsoft and Cisco and PwC, etc. So yeah, very, very fortunate with what's happened in my life. I think it's a, a diverse career as well. And uh, you see a lot of footballers, of course, who would then say, right, well, that was great. Thank you very much. Maybe they do some coaching. Maybe they just, uh, yeah, chill out on their private island somewhere. I don't know. But uh, uh, it's nice to see that you've taken a, a bit of a different look at things. Um, and I think it's really good to to get your insights then as to how you then use the psychological elements as an athlete, but also then on the other side of things as a staff member, how you then uh, approach things as well. So my first question, I suppose, is why is it then important to consider the psychological side of sport? Well, I think that if you were to ask most uh, coaches or players, you know, what percentage of their week or season are they spending or at least what category are they spending on? Is it the technical side? Is it the physical side? Is it the you know the psychological side or the the social element of, of performance? And 
And I think most players, most coaches probably spend anything from 95 to 99% of their, you know, their session plans, their everything they do is generally based around technical and physical, which is great because obviously you need to a, get to that standard of whatever uh, level you're playing at, but then also maintaining it. So I do appreciate that. But in my experience, you know, when you walk into a Premier League dressing room, you are there because you've got the technical and the physical attributes to perform at that level. But once everybody's at pretty much the same level, technically and physically, how do you then make a difference between players and, and what differentiates players? And time and time and time again, every single player I've played with, every kind of dress room I've ever been in, it always comes down to the mindset or the mentality or the psychological approach or the mental performance of the individuals or the teams that actually has the biggest impact on the outcomes and results that those individuals or teams gain. I think that's a, a really big statement and it frames the discussion really nicely to make sure that we know just how important that is. Um, so with that in mind, uh, you've, you've obviously been in the dressing room on both sides of, uh, on both sides of that. What do you think are the biggest mistakes which athletes make when it comes to their mental performance? Well, mistake is, is probably quite a strong word and, and maybe not the word that I would use, but I, I just can only go off my experience. And my experience was when I was 16, I left Ireland to go across Tottenham Hotspur and, and my first day at Spurs coincided with Jürgen Klinsmann who if anyone you know, doesn't know Jürgen uh, was a World Cup winner with Germany you know one of the one of the best players in the world and he had just signed at Tottenham Hotspur now as a 16 year old kid training with a World Cup winner on your first day you know most of the players in our youth team who were there with me probably looked across at this German international and thought wow isn't it amazing playing alongside a World Cup winner but my mindset automatically took me to a place of going oh my goodness if that's what it takes to be a a professional footballer be a Premier League player or c an international footballer then there is no way in the world I will ever ever be able to do that but there was nobody telling me that there was no one's kind of saying Paul look you're never going to get like this that was just down to my mindset my limiting beliefs and almost an inferiority complex that I came across from Belfast with. And if I didn't change that along my sort of career path, then probably my career would have been very short and we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> now, very, very fortunate for me. I had a, a friend who offered me to read a book, and actually by a guy called Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins. And the book essentially took all of the the lessons from personal development and summed it up in this one book. And if I were to try and condense that entire you know, 500 page book that I read as a 17 year old kid, probably the greatest lesson I could share with you today, Matt, is that it came to me, stop looking outside of yourself because everything you'll ever need, you've already got within. And for a 17 year old kid, that is an incredibly powerful message. And especially for someone like me who had an inferiority complex in this real self-limiting belief. So because I've then seen the benefits of taking that almost mantra or belief and saying, right, okay, what can I do? How can I design my career? How do I design my life? What beliefs should I be you know, accepting and not accepting? What are going to be helpful and not helpful for me as I start going through my career? And then, as you say, it's probably no coincidence that 
that took me through my playing days. And then when I came out the other side of playing, I kind of seamlessly transitioned into being a performance psychologist, a keynote speaker, worked in the media. But these things don't happen by accident. These things happen because when I stopped playing and when I was, obviously when I was playing, like doing my sports science degree, finishing my playing days, going to do my master's in sports psychology, as well as having a real focus and dedication on what I wanted my life to look like, is purely down to my mindset and mental performance is the only reason why that happens. I think that, that speaks volumes as well. And what I would then be interested in is to, to look at the practical aspect of that. So you, you were a, a kid basically who just moved to a new city, a new country. Um, and you sat there thinking, well, okay, that's, that's a really difficult situation. I'm not sure whether this is going to work. Um, if you, if you were to take that maybe out of its context and, and start advising your younger self, so you could say, Hey, uh, I'm going to work with you as a, as a sports psychologist at the moment. Um, how would you then practically as a practitioner look to address some of those issues? Well, put it this way, whenever I'm working with the, with the players, whether it's Norwich City, uh, Crystal Palace or the individual players I've worked with over the years, the number one area that they want to talk about they want to work on and they want to improve for their performance is confidence i'm like okay so first of all we need to break down what is confidence well i believe confidence is an emotion and then of course if we look into the field of psychology not this isn't what i think this is what the field of psychology accepts that how you think drives how you feel so your confidence which is an emotion is how you feel you either feel walking onto the pitch feeling confident or not is 100% driven and dictated by how you think. So essentially, if you understand that confidence comes from within, and actually it's nothing that's an external, it's not extrinsic to you, it's something that you can 100% control, but most players don't realize this. So let me give you an example. Let's take your remote control for your TV. So imagine that little remote control for your TV isn't just for your TV, it's actually for your confidence as a player. But after a game on a Monday morning, most players come in to me and generally, do you think they want to come and see me when they've had the best game ever? No. <laughs> they come and see me when they've had a stinker, when everything has gone wrong, when they haven't played well and they're like, I need to work on my confidence. And it's like they're kind of, they would go in and see the manager or a coach on a Monday morning, you know, sort of break down what they did well or not. But it's like they're kind of walking into the room, taking this remote control for the confidence and giving it to the coach and saying, you know, coach, how did you think I played? And if the coach goes, Paul, you were absolutely brilliant at the weekend. thought you were amazing, best player on the pitch. You're definitely starting next week. Probably your confidence you know, goes right up after hearing that. But of course, if the coach comes the other way and goes, Paul, you were terrible. You didn't do this. You missed this opportunity. You didn't work hard enough. Didn't say that you're never playing for me again. Your confidence is probably like, oh my goodness, you know, what am I going to do? But then they'll come out of that room and then they might go and, I don't know, speak to their parents or their partner or their friends or family or whoever. And say the same thing. How do you think I played at the weekend? And it's like they're given this remote control of their confidence to pretty much everyone they meet. And it's not just coaching members and staff and the training ground and the team, not just friends and family. They kind of almost allow people to, to dictate how they feel and how confident they are. A lot of players then go on social media and it's a bit like, what do you think of me as a player? And if social media is really kind to you, which Let's be honest, how many times is there social media? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it is, mate. <laughs> Not too much. But if you're going that, and it's a bit like they're given in the entire social media the remote control for their confidence. Now, what I would say is, how conducive is that 
for you to go out and be highly confident when you need to, either it's in training or on the pitch. And of course it's not. So when you realize that actually it doesn't ultimately matter what anyone else is saying, what anyone else that might give you feedback, but actually if you can almost take back that remote control, if you can bring it in and make it more intrinsic, more of a what we call an internal locus of control, if you can fully own that, then you can decide and dictate your own confidence. Now, for some people, that's really, really scary because it's a bit like, well, most people go to external things and people and places to try and get confidence. But whenever you realize that it's not down to anyone else, it's just down to you, that is where the game changing happens. This podcast is also brought to you by Flex. Flex is the latest product to enter the velocity-based training market developed by the team at Gymware. Flex is the only laser-based training system available and it's this unique technology that makes Flex the most accurate and reliable barbell tracking product in the sub-500 US dollar category. It's wireless, portable, and it's super user-friendly. Find out why VBT is such a powerful training method and what separates Flex from the competition at flexstronger.com. I think that's uh, that's absolutely fantastic. So you've you've got yourself a situation right where um, you've explained this to an athlete, and uh, the athlete's like, "Cool, I'm I'm bought in. I I really think this is a good decision to to work on." What are you then going to do to make sure that they start working on it? What's your, what's your your first few steps? Well, I think it's really the sad understanding, and because whenever the the reason why people start struggling with this, it's almost like whenever they've started to veer off track. So it's a bit like why, you know, top class athletes still have coaches and why, you know, top class players still need managers and coaches around them is because everybody knows what to do, but they don't always do what they know. So if you have all these things that you're trying to, you know, keep together whenever you're playing and competing and performing, but of course, not everything obviously goes 100% of the plan. And it's very easy because, you know, when I talked about that kind of cognitive behavior, cognitive behavioral um, therapy that model of how you think drives how you feel and how you feel drives what you do or how you behave how you act you know once you understand it okay we can think and we can get ourselves in a really healthy constructive place in terms of our mindset but of course we're emotional creatures you know things will happen and instead of responding to things in a really helpful constructive way a lot of times players coaches you know people can respond or react to ways that are actually really less than helpful. And it's that it's almost that awareness that you need to keep working on with, with individuals so that they realize what they're going to do, how they're going to respond. And sometimes they don't always react in the best way. <laughs> I can imagine it's uh, it's very tricky. You're walking a tightrope a lot of the time as well, because even if, uh, even if you're doing all of the great work to make sure that they are bringing that back into themselves, they see some stuff on social media and then, uh, yeah, that rope breaks and uh, and you manage to fall in the river. It's uh, it's a very tr- tricky situation, I imagine. But, um, we're, but we're all human, you know. We're all human, so it's it's you're not going to be perfect all the time, and you're not always going to make the sort of the best choice all the time. But a lot of the times, whenever these things happen, and, and it's not necessarily the outcome that's the most important thing. It's how you think about the outcome that's actually the most important thing. So whenever, let's give an example: if someone goes out and has an absolutely horrendous performance on the pitch they're the worst player on the pitch worst game they've ever played if you think okay 
oh, this is, I'm, I'm thinking this from a personal point of view, whenever I was probably <laughs> 23, 24 and didn't understand this whole world of psychology, I would generally have a bad performance and then I would go home after the game and I would really beat myself up. I don't know if, you know, if you've done this as well and, you know, if you're going to work on your put in, say, 20 things that you're doing in a day, you know, because you're competent, because you know what you're doing, you might do 18 or 19 things really well out of what you're asked to do. But then one thing you kind of mess up on. Now, what do you think most people go home and think about? The 18 things that they did really well or the one or two things they didn't do quite as well as they could have done? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's always the stuff which uh, which niggles in the back of your mind as well, right? It's always the, oh, I could have done that better. And you reflect and you could have done that little step better. It's, uh, yeah, that's very, very tricky. But that's that's also perspective thing of saying, okay, so are we focusing on what we did well? And that's what we're going to think about. Or are we going to focus on that one thing that didn't go quite as well? But actually, even that one thing that didn't go quite as well, there's a certain way that you can react to that or respond to that that's going to be helpful or a way to think about it that's going to be unhelpful. So, for instance, if I had a bad performance on the pitch, I could go home and go, oh, Paul, why are you so stupid? Why do you always mess up? Why do you always get things wrong? Now, again, what's that going to lead to? And that's probably you know quite a destructive path to go down. But whenever I started to understand about reframing, how you can take the same scenario that happens to you and just think about it in a different way, and whenever I used to go home, and instead of beating myself up mentally, I used to start asking myself different questions because, you know, the brain's a bit like Google. Whatever question you ask, you know, of yourself, like Google, you, you ask a question at Google, you're going to get a million answers. So if I ask Google, Paul, why are you so stupid? Well, because you didn't do this, because you didn't do this, because you didn't do this. But if I ask myself a different question, I'll go, okay, what can I learn from this experience? What can I do differently next time? What can I do during the week in practice that's going to allow me to have a much better chance of being successful next week? And once you start going down that path, that leads to you to a whole other um, outcome. Absolutely. I think that's uh, that's really important to, to acknowledge as well, that if you start to be able to think differently, then you can start at least to be gaining that confidence. Um, and that leads me on, I suppose, to the, to the next question, and that is then what are the, the key lessons which you would take from both sides of, uh, of the coin as such from your experience as both a player and a, a staff member? What are the key lessons which you would look at if you were to then give advice to your younger self or to young athletes now? Uh, what would those lessons be? I don't think it matters whether you're playing or coaching. I would say it's the same lesson, and that is open-mindedness. You know, I'll give an example. Whenever I first joined Tottenham Hotspur in 1994, the entire um, backroom staff for Tottenham Hotspur, well, at least for the youth team, but pretty much for the first team as well, was a coach, a physio, and a kit man. <laughs> Two years later, in 1996, we had our first sports scientist come and work with us, Cooley, come in, and he came in and just completely, you know, changed how people thought about, you know, fitness our approach to fitness, what you should be eating, what you'd be doing, how your training should be. And suddenly you go from that to then when I left uh, Crystal Palace in 2017, we had, you know, three sports analysts for the for the youth team. We had two analysts, we have two physios, we've got a doctor, we've got me as a sports site, we've got a nutritionist, you got you know, all of these things that suddenly go around. But that came from as this progression through you know, my, especially my, my experience at professional football, you didn't realize what you didn't know at the start 
So whether it's your start of your playing career or the start of your coaching career, you know the expression, you don't know, you don't know. So I didn't know at the start of my professional football career that I didn't know about sports science or I didn't know about psychology or I didn't know about nutrition. But of course, as you start going through, you then start meeting people and you come across new ideas, new technologies, the evolution of football. And you suddenly are in this choice and you either you know, go, oh, I'm going to stick to this because this is the way it is and this has worked for me in the past. Or you think, do you know what? This is actually, this is the new way to do it. This is a better way. And actually, if I do this, this is going to give me that, you know, slight increase in my performance and why, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what I heard, that I think Liverpool first team apparently employ four mathematicians for, for in their squad. <laughs> and, and you're just thinking, it is mad, but if it's true, it's because that's the way football is going because it's much more, you know, statistic based and, and much more about the numbers. And then they can start bringing other areas of expertise outside of football, such as mathematics, into the world of football because they believe that's going to help them perform better. I think it's, a, it's certainly a, a huge, interesting area of, uh, of development as well. I mean, obviously, uh, maths is in a, a more extreme example because you don't associate it with football, but uh, even things like scouting could benefit from that. I mean, the, just using decent statistics to find uh, talented young players is, uh, is a big step from necessarily trusting uh, the physios or sorry, the, the scout's eye to just see, yeah. oh, yeah, that kid's good. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe the eye is good, but maybe it's not. And at the point that it's not, then some statistics to back it up would be pretty useful. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that then starts to take away from the fact that it's, you know, essentially, you know, being a professional footballer is like an unregulated market. Cause why does someone get a professional contract or not? Because someone looks at a player either over a couple of games or over a year or two years and decides that that person is, in their opinion, worthy of a professional contract but that is so subjective isn't it so yeah. when you realize that actually one person's opinion of what a professional is versus another could be so far apart and yet they're both professional so yeah absolutely that's subjective nature and even that even comes back in another way that you'd work with players about after a game how do you analyze your performance you know and the three questions that most people ask after a game are generally what was the score did you score? How did you play? And I talk about a, a dumbed down version of analysis. And then, of course, how did you play turns into three possible answers. And because football is you know, normally quite modest and try and be quite humble, they, they normally say things like, how did you play? So if you had an okay game, you'd be like, yeah, not bad. I was okay. <laughs> if you had an absolute stinker, it was like, oh, nightmare, worst game, I've completely messed up. Even if you even if you had an amazing game, you did really well, man of the match, perform like Messi, most people go, Yeah, yeah, did all right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know these kind of sweeping generalizations are not helpful in terms of how we analyze our own performance. But again, it all comes back into what you talked about, you know, the with the advice you'd give to your younger self. It's the open mindedness of what are you doing to analyze your own performance so you can measure it, so you can improve going forward. And out of interest then, how should you, from a psychological standpoint, uh, start to analyze your performance? I personally, whenever I was um, about 21, 22, because I was never the best player in the team, Matt, I was, you know, I'm being a little short, I'm only five feet six, so I was physically never, you know, anything special. Technically, I was always kind of middle of the group. But from a psychological point of view, because probably I read that book at 17, I was so open-minded and I was just craving 
how can I get an edge over all these people who are technically and physically more superior to me? So what I started doing, going, okay, what am I trying to achieve when I'm out on the pitch? So I was playing either as a striker or as a left winger. And I was always trying to score goals. It's almost like the top of my pyramid was score goal. Okay, what about underneath that? Either make an assist or create a chance to that's going to score a goal. So it's a bit like 10 points for scoring a goal, 9 points for an assist, 8 points for being involved in the goal. And then you start worrying, what else do I need to do as a ringer? I need to put crosses in. Okay, so that's 7 points. I need, I need to have shots, so that's 6 points. I need to you know play forward passes, that's fine. So I started creating a pyramid and analysis of my game that I thought these are pretty much the 10 things that I'm trying to do every single time I get the ball. And then you can start watching it back. And it's a bit like how, you know, analysts and I would tag certain things within a game. Well, actually, that's what I was doing nearly 20 years ago and looking at my performance. So after every game, I'd have a score of technically and physically, what was I doing? Whether I score and was I making assists, but also then having that subjective rating for myself of how did I feel I did? Because I might not have scored, I might not have made an assist, I might not have had any shots on goal. But that doesn't mean that I didn't have a good game. And I could possibly think I had an 8 or a 9 or a 10. Or I could have done all those things and actually still thought it was a 4 or 5. So just keeping the track. And it's that measurable improvement of how you play, which is the most important thing. I think that's an absolutely fantastic lesson. And it's a, it's a testament to athletes who really take ownership of their own programs and start using the, the resources which they have, um, whether that's staff members, whether that's even just a laptop to, to keep track of something on Excel. Um, but it's the, it's the testament to the athletes who really own their programs and they're treating themselves like, uh, their own business, right? So if you, if you want a new contract, then you have to prove that you're really good. You have to work on that yourself. It's, it's easy to turn up to a, tra- a training session, whether it's in the, in the gym or on the pitch and work hard, uh, cause everyone's working hard, but then to really own your program, that's, uh, that's another step. And I think it's really interesting to hear how you did that and you were probably ahead of the game in doing it as well. Well, but I also because I felt I needed it because, again, I'm not trying to be modest in this, but I always knew physically I was right at the bottom of the kind of of the spectrum or one end of the spectrum compared to, you know, I played like Sol Campbell and Teddy Sharon and all these kind of, you know, Dean Ashton and, you know, just these guys here were just huge men. Now I could never compete for that. And even technically I played in the same team as like Davis Ginola, Craig Bellamy, you know, these players here were just unbelievably technical. But I could never compete with that. So I was always looking for that advantage. And, and I think it does come back to that open-mindedness. And so two two really short examples were I remember having a conversation with my dad. And he said, Paul, why don't you try uh, visualization? And I had no idea about visualization. And he said, listen, my dad's a big golf fan. So he's like, Jack Nicklaus, best golfer in the world. Before he plays every shot, he always visualizes where he wants the ball to go. So I remember, you know, he sent across this cassette. Not to be fair, Matt, you're a bit young for cassettes. Anyway, he sent across <laughs> I was this thing. Ju- ju- I just on the border, to. mate. I was just on the border <laughs> of it. <laughs> so he basically sent this across. I listened to it and essentially used to do this every single day, every single night, so that I was visualizing from a 17-year-old kid all the way through. And then ironically, the little gold montage that I have that I show um, my corporate clients at the start of my keynote, whenever I show them that, the one scenario that I used to visualize is the majority of the goals that I scored throughout my career. Now, I don't know whether that's down to me visualizing or not, but probably an easy way to sum it up is, do you think that's a coincidence? Probably not. The second example I'm going to give you really quickly is 
whenever I was again 17 or 18, had a conversation with my mum. And my mum had done yoga when she was younger. And she said, Paul, why don't you try yoga? I'm like, what? In a church hall with a bunch of middle-aged ladies? No, thanks. <laughs> not for me. And she's like, no, but it's it's really good for your um, flexibility. Would that help your football? I was like, yeah. And she goes, it's really good to reduce injuries. Would that help your football? I'm like, yeah. She goes, and it's really good for your core strength. And I was like, what's core strength you know as a 17 year old had no idea but essentially i went and got the video and again you probably don't know what that is but i got bought a video of doing some yoga and i used to do that every day before training and i started that at 17 now i'm 43 so 26 years later and i've pretty much been doing yoga all through those 26 years and i left professional football career after nearly 20 years and i had one muscle injury and not even that was a you know, probably shouldn't have got it because we did a shooting session on one of the first days in preseason. So the whole fact that I've gone through nearly 20 years of a professional football career and had one muscle injury, again, was that down to yoga? I don't know. Was it a coincidence? Probably not. I think that's absolutely excellent. And I'm, I'm worried that I'm stealing your entire morning at the moment. So I want to ask you our most difficult question uh, that we can think of. And that is, what is the one thing that you see or do differently, which the rest of the world can learn from? Well, I don't. There's, there's no, it's so funny. Um, whenever you're trying to sum up uh, a 25 year career in one word or one lesson or one thing, um, I don't, I don't do anything differently. In fact, it's the opposite. I see what people are doing here in my field that I admire that I want to perform like them and I try and copy them you know because if if they're doing it what I want to do then I will just copy them as much as I can I'll give you a quick example whenever I was 20 I think I was 22 I just joined Norwich City and my favorite player at the time was Gianfranco Zola who was playing for Chelsea now because again I was looking for some way of improving all the time I thought I'd love to play more like Gianfranco Zola, even though I never got to his level, but we had a similar style, being a smaller player, playing off a big man up front. So I thought, I'd love to speak to him. I'd love to ask him these questions. So I got in touch, not with Gianfranco, but with someone that I knew who knew him. And I said, listen, I'd love to take Gianfranco out for some lunch, um, any chance you could arrange that. Gianfranco Zola, even though I was some unknown kid at Norwich City, allowed me to take him for lunch in Fulham on some Wednesday afternoon when he was having a day off and I went down and I literally sat there with a list of questions and asked him what about this how do you do this what do you do this in the morning what do you do this for training how do you do free kicks why do you get space and but you know and literally just picked his brain because he was doing what I wanted to do and I wanted to learn from him I didn't need to reinvent the wheel I didn't need to do something differently I just needed to try and be more like Gianfranco Zola now of course I never got there but some of the things that he took away from and I was, he was talking about doing Tai Chi and what helped. He thought that helped him, you know, stay longer in the game because he was fitter and healthier and more calm and all the rest of it, all the way through to his practice and free kicks, all the way through to playing with Maradona and Napoli in Italy. And you're just going, this is amazing. and took so much away from it, but it was not for me doing something different. I was just trying to copy the experts and the top performers in my field at the time. I think that's also very good advice, right? Make sure you're you're looking around you for the best people in the industry and uh, you're talking to them and, and trying to steal their best ideas. That's also uh, a very, very good piece of advice. Yeah, because yeah, you know why? Because they stole it from other people. <laughs> <laughs> that's a circle Generally, of life, right? Very few people have come out with the, the new ideas and, and completely you know, reinvent the wheel. It's, it's most people are just taking the same concept and doing it slightly better. So proximity is power in that. 
Absolutely brilliant. So, Paul, massive thanks for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Wadi. And that's it once again. A massive thanks to Paul for all of his hard work today's podcast. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is a series of mini lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you're interested in anything sports psychology related, which Paul has touched on today, be sure to get yourself into the Coach Academy and there you'll be able to find yourself a variety of lectures looking at a variety of different topics on sports psychology. So if you're interested, just click the link in the show notes in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to also hit the subscribe button. That's really important as it means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.